Hi, I wanted to welcome you again to the Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. I wanted to pull down another book and have you take a look at it with me. It's uh, This one this time has an old name and it's got a newer name. The version I have is called Under the Influence, which <laughs> I can see the problem that it suggests it's about some kind of addiction. But the new name is How Christianity Changed the World. Okay, so that was a far better choice, How Christianity Changed the World. The author is... Alvin J. Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T, Alvin J. Schmidt. Uh, just a little bit about him. He's a Ph.D. from the University of Nebraska. He was professor of sociology in Illinois at uh, Illinois College, and he's written all sorts of things. And if I haven't read anything else by him, but this book is excellent. And his subtitle of it, is how Christianity transformed civilization. And so, just to give you an idea of the chapters, it covers, it's an amazing historical piece of writing. It's, for example, uh, Christianity changed human life and sanctified it. Christianity elevated sexual morality. Women received freedom and dignity. By the way, that's the chapter I'd like to look at today. Uh, charity and compassion owe their starts to Christianity. Hospitals, health care, education, labor, economics, science, liberty, slavery being abolished, art, architecture, sound of music, literature, holidays, words, symbols, expressions. I mean, I don't know how he did this much studying. I mean, it's an amazing bunch of stuff here as far as the influence, the positive influence of Christianity. Good heavens, don't you think we need today something that's talking on the positive aspects of Christianity, all we're hearing is the negative parts. And uh, it needs to be balanced. Sure, there have been some terrible things that have happened. We're all broken people, so Christians are, are broken as well. But the amazingly wonderful things that have come about because of Christianity need to be stressed. They're not out there. They're not being talked about. So let's take a look at chapter 4 in the book. And this one is called Women Receive Freedom and Dignity. And as I read that, the more I thought about it, again, we're only being told part of the story. We look at 21st century and we say, well, Christianity may have done a few things, but it's still far short of what it should be. And we're, we're judging it by right now, today. But I want to put it in a far bigger picture. I'd like to give you some background that he brings up. This would be going back to the Greeks and the Romans and the Hebrews just so that you can see the culture that Christianity came out of and what it did for women. So I'm starting uh, chapter 4 here. He says, well, what would the status of women in the Western world today have been like if Jesus had never been on the stage? And he said, well, take a look at what it's like for women in Islamic countries, as an example. They don't have the rights that men have. You know, the way they're veiled and some can't drive cars and uh, some aren't allowed to wear lipstick and all these places man can beat and sexually desert his wife all with the full support of the Quran. So we sometimes measure it against this ideal utopian vision and say, well, it didn't quite match up. But in the real world, among actual people, Christianity has done way more for women so he starts in, he, he takes us back, does a little history tour. He said, uh, nobody really knows or thinks about what it was like to be a woman in the Greek world. 
we're talking three or 400 BC. He says, as an example, a respected uh, Athenian woman who was considered respectable couldn't leave her house unless she was accompanied by a male escort, a, a slave that was appointed by her husband. And when the husband's male guests were present, she couldn't eat or interact with them. She had to retire to her own quarters. And so it was uh, virtually a, a time of no freedom for women. And a lot of the philosophers and a lot of the writers would put down women. That uh, Euripides said, silence, that's what's beautiful in women, and they should remain quiet. Um, let's see, Aeschylus had a chorus declare in one of his plays, evil of mind are they, talking about women, and guileful of purpose with impure thoughts. Another Greek poet, Aristophanes, had the chorus say, for women are a shameless set, the vilest of creatures going. Even Homer, Homer had Agamemnon say, one cannot trust women. So not very good spot for women to be stuck in during that time period. I know we see those pictures of the Greeks and we think, oh, you know, they were the early philosophers and all. Well, yeah, those are the men. What about Roman women? Did things get any better during the Roman times? No. Uh, for example, Romans valued baby girls much less, and so they were victims of infanticide a lot more. Uh, high rate of female infanticide. Roman women had a, some more freedom, he says, than the Greeks, but no rights or no privileges that the men had. And they did get a little bit of education, but they weren't allowed to be with their husband's guests at a meal, all sorts of restrictions. They were under uh, absolute control of the husband, had ownership of her and all her possessions. He could divorce her for all sorts of reasons, but she couldn't divorce him. As I said, uh, the Roman women had little or no property rights. Tacitus argues that women are domineering and cruel. He was a famous Roman historian. Uh, I'll skip over that. What about the Hebrews? Now, you know, Christianity comes out of the Hebrew uh, religion as well, but they were pretty down on women. He has a quote from a rabbinic teaching that says it was shameful to hear a woman's voice in public. Another rabbi said, let the words of the law, the Torah, be burned rather than committed to a woman. If a man teaches his daughter the law, it's as though he taught her lechery. Wow. Even Josephus said women were not to speak because the law of Moses prescribed it. So there's your background. The Greeks, the Romans, the Hebrews all had women as, I wouldn't even say second rate. I mean, they were down at the bottom there as far as status goes. But then it says it was radically affected. This status of women was radically affected by Jesus. And he gives some examples. Uh, I'll just pick one. There's that story of the good Samaritan. I'm sorry, the Samaritan woman. He meets her at a well and asks her for a drink, and they end up talking. It said the law was explicit. He who talks with a woman in public brings evil upon himself. Another rabbinic teaching during this time said one is not so much as to greet a woman. And there's Jesus discussing this. In fact, he's the, it was the first time he revealed that he was the Messiah to, to a Samaritan woman. Well, I, maybe I'll mention a couple of other incidents that are in the New Testament as well to illustrate Jesus' change toward women compared to earlier cultures.
cultures. How about the Mary and Martha incident? What's going on there? Well, Martha's working like crazy in the kitchen, and she gets after Mary for not helping her because she comes and she sits there learning from Jesus. But Jesus didn't side with Martha. He commended Mary for being there. He violated the law. Part of the rabbinic law said, Let's, let the words of the law be burned rather than taught to a woman. Don't teach a woman. He also tarred, taught Martha on another occasion. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Who? This says it's only recorded one time in the four Gospels. And who did he speak these to? A woman. To teach a woman was bad enough, but he was asking for a response. He asked for a verbal response. He went against the customs of the day. He appeared to women after his resurrection. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that makes me think the resurrection stories are true. If you're making up these stories and trying to convince people of that time period and that location that Jesus was the, the real deal, you would have them appearing to men. Men's testimony carried something in the courts of that day, but women's testimony didn't. So that was really amazing. What happens after the time of Jesus? It says during um, the apostolic era that it said the followers assembled and it said women were prominent in setting up house churches and not just setting them up, but being leaders. Paul noticed Aphia is our sister, was a leader in a house church in Colossae. In Laodicea, there was Nympha. In Ephesus, there was Priscilla and Aquila, her husband. They had a house church, their own house church. Another key person that, that I think has gotten a bad rap, unfortunately, is Phoebe. Okay, she's one of those that Paul mentions at the end of Romans. And here's the deal. Paul calls her a deacon. He didn't use the feminine form, but if you look at a lot of Bible translations these days, they use the word deaconess. That's not what Paul said. He called her a deacon. So she was a, he called her that, and he called her a leading officer. And it says that's the kind of person that would lead or conduct or direct or govern. So govern. So she was in a high position there. In his letter at Philippi, he talks about Yodia and Syntyche or Syntyche. He said, they're my fellow workers. He says, Paul esteemed women as his peers. So Christianity appealed to women strongly. He says, women were way more active in the early church than were men. They've found that to be over and over again. It says the women were more spirited than the men. And it said in the age of persecution, it was women that occupied foremost places and ranks of martyrdom. Rodney Stark, he quotes Rodney Stark here, a historian, estimating that the early Christian community well, well may have been around 60% female. So that's pretty high. Now, he's willing to say, okay, which I think is good. It's fair. He says, after 150 A.D., so that's kind of the end of the apostolic church era, he, he agrees. He says there's no doubt that some of the church leaders reverted back to some of those pagan anti-women background that they came out of. And he said they probably came from that background themselves. Many of them had. And so the Greco-Roman, the Judeo uh, cultures that ended up excluding some women in some of the life and the structure of the church. That's really sad, isn't it? You hate to see a, something sliding backward. But he said, even during this time period, he says women were treated okay. 
and as man's equal. For instance, before he became a member of the church, a woman would receive the same uh, catechism as a man did, in other words, the instruction. She was baptized like a man. She participated equally with men in getting the Lord's Supper. She prayed and sang with men in the same worship setting. So even during this time of some hostility toward women, they still were right up front getting to do some of the things the men did. Also, it says uh, it helped the Christians help get rid of the Roman standard that the husband got to decide everything. It said the pagan husband had lost the power of life and death over his family, including his wife, thanks to the rise of Christianity. Uh, find out that, that Christian women married later than their pagan Roman counterparts. And not only by having freedom to marry later, they showed freedom in who they got to marry. They didn't marry who their father told them to marry. And so it said that there's quite a change going on there. They also were able to get rid of wearing veils, which you still see in a lot of uh, Arabic, Arab countries today. Um, it was Christianity that rejected multiple marriages uh, because Christ said it was a monog monogamous, uh, let's see, a monogamous, well, let me start the sentence over. Christ's view of marriage was monogamous. It complemented his high regard in women because the author is saying, you know, when women are in a, a, a multi-woman marriage like this, it really ends up demeaning them. And so he says, as a result of Jesus and his teachings, women in the world today, especially in the West, have more privileges and rights than at any other time in history. And he contrasts it then as he begins to wrap up this portion of his book. He says, let's look around the world in a couple of places. And he takes on India, for example. For example, with their Hindu-oriented culture, they used to practice sati. That was the burning alive of a widow. When a widow's husband died, when a woman's husband died, she as the faithful wife was expected to get on that funeral pyre and be cremated with them. And sometimes she was put there, it says, by force. If she got away with it and got out of there, her life in society was ruined. She was treated like she was a non-person. And that says widows were also burned in other countries and said absolutely different when Christianity came in. He takes on another culture. How about the Chinese? Women had to have foot binding go on. So small girls, usually about five years of age, had their feet bound, said that practice existed for about a thousand years. And it was just horrific. And they said, finally, he said, it was Christianity's influence in China that led the government to get rid of that in 1912. So it went clear into the 20th century. And then he talks about, uh, I don't know if I'll pronounce it right, clitoridectomy, there we go. Uh, sometimes called female circumcision. He said that's not really the right title, but they said it's uh, practiced in African countries, in Europe, even in some uh, places in America by recent African immigrants. And it says uh, one recent source indicates that it's being performed right now in 26 African countries. And it's barbaric. It's, it's awful. But it said... That, got, that was uh, outlawed as well by Christianity. It said Christian values now are making people recoil at this gruesome custom. So what does he say as far as a conclusion? Well, he quotes one person saying the birth of Jesus was the turning point in the history of woman. 
And his last comment is actually a question. Where else do women have more freedom, opportunity, and human worth than in countries that have been highly influenced by the Christian ethic? So again, I, I like what he has to say. I think it's he's being fair, uh, and he realizes it's not 100%. Of course it's not 100% because we're all broken people. But more good things have come about for women because of Christianity than in any other culture. So, um, one more time, that's Alvin Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T. It used to be called Under the Influence. <laughs> they got rid of that now. It's how Christianity changed the world. It's, it's a wonderful read. He knows his history and all those different areas that are influenced by Christianity. We need positive history to be able to counteract what we're hearing out there, that Christianity is bad for culture. It used to be, oh, I don't know if I believe that Jesus lived. Oh, I don't know if I trust the Gospels. Those questions are starting to disappear. Instead, we're hearing things that Christianity is bad. Not that it's false, but it, that it's bad. And in some cases, bad for women. Well, read something like this, and I think you might change your mind, or you might change other people's minds. So, and there are plenty of other books, by the way. If you ever contact me, I can tell you some other books that uh, talk about New Testament and women, because that's uh, certainly a hot-button issue these days. But I thank you for joining me for this podcast, and we'll pull down another book in a future one. Thanks, and hope you have a good day.